Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And this week's guest is finally making her solo debut on Best Little Horror House in Philly after a triumphant victory on the very first legal thriller. She's one of the hosts of the preeminent Nick Cage podcast, Cage Fight. Welcome back, Jessica Cook. Hi. How you doing? (laughs) Doing great, doing great. Thrilled to have you back. Thrilled to talk about the movie you picked, even though I did, I I did suggest it. I was like, I know you love this movie. <laughs> yeah, you you uh, you did suggest it, but I very gladly went along with this one. Hell yeah! And I'm actually excited here because on my podcast, generally I'm the one who has to keep things on track, but here I can be the one who derails <laughs> things and goes down rabbit holes. So uh, <laughs> exactly. Finally, your turn to be the chaos agent. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So this week, we're talking about Mulholland Drive, our fourth David Lynch movie to appear on the show, something that makes me very happy considering he's not traditionally considered a horror director. He's also not the most accessible in general. So I'm curious how your David Lynch journey started and also how you came to this one in particular. Well, the first things I saw for David Lynch were a couple episodes of Twin Peaks five or six years ago. I was seeing someone at the time who liked the show and was trying to get me to watch it too, but I was, I don't know, I was intrigued, but uh, didn't find the time to watch it. And then uh, this movie is actually the thing that really got me more into David Lynch when I first saw this, I think about four years ago now. Yeah, there's a new year, four years ago. (laughs) And I don't know, I watched this movie and... Well, first, immediately was very confused, but secondly, was like, okay, I feel like I'm going to have to watch this again and dig more into it. Uh, since then, I've seen this, like, probably six times uh, total, and I, I've delved more into David Lynch's stuff, watched all of Twin Peaks, of course, seen, like, Eraserhead and Blue Velvet. Those are great movies, but this one still has a special place in my heart for his top spot. But yeah, in terms of horror stuff in general, I don't know that I've dug into every last aspect of horror and everything, but uh, I I am a pretty big horror fan. I I have to convince a lot of friends to watch more horror movies with me. (laughs) And yeah, if we hadn't picked this one today, I think the movie I would have wanted to talk about would have been Hereditary also. So uh, there you go. I tend to like my horror a little more like slow burn and psychological, which this pretty well fits in with too. Totally agree. I think that David Lynch is so good at getting under your skin and, and, you know, making the horror feel so unnerving as opposed to just something jumping out at you. Mm-hmm. Although that this has that as well in one point. Yeah. <laughs> so in Lynch on Lynch, he said, great cinema tells a story but goes deep into the psyche and there are undercurrents that are caught on deeper levels. And I think that Mulholland Drive does that incredibly there, there's an incredible story that we puzzle out through subtextual implications, but even further underneath also exists a secondary sprawling metaphor that does invite you to watch over and over and pick up more of it. So as far as format for today, we're going to try and cruise through the plot and save interpretation for its own section instead of trying to do it as we go. So he also, David, famously refuses to talk about the meaning of his work. Yeah. So any interpretation (laughs) is just that, solely our own thoughts, no right or wrong. Uh, Because of that, I also didn't bother looking up anyone else's theories, but I did consult Gigi and Greg about my own, so thank you to them. With uh, this has the aspect where you have to figure out the plot, and then there's the whole metaphorical sense (laughs) underneath that. Yeah, I I feel like this movie takes thinking about a movie to a whole new level, where you have to think to figure out what literally happened in the film, (laughs) and then there's still more to be thinking to be done. (laughs) 
it's it's a really interesting movie. Yeah, it's definitely not something that like you can just turn your brain off and and go and watch. I really don't think that people would really get like anything out of the movie if they're just looking for something to zone out during. Yeah. But the movie came out in 2001. Interestingly, this is Lynch's last movie to be shot on film. So a pretty major landmark in his filmography. This change came about for those who care because he likes the way it frees things up for experimentation, both workflow wise and in post-production. I love the way film looks personally, but I certainly can't get mad about him wanting to experiment more. Yeah. As Someone who has been known to mess around with cameras occasionally. I mean, film is great, but uh, sometimes working digitally is just far easier. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. And this was initially supposed to be a TV show. After Twin Peaks had ended, Lynch had literally written on plywood, I will never do television again. But an ABC producer had started jazzing him up, and he was still drawn to the idea of the longer form story. So he developed this. The pitch went great. And he got to work filming. But when it came time to show them something, he described it as a little finer than a rough cut, but still not a finished product. He said it was watched by someone at 6 a.m. standing up and watching it on a TV from across their office while distracted by morning coffee. (laughs) So the person hated it, of course, because like we just said, you're not really going to get anything out of it if you're not paying attention. And it's just not that kind of movie. And so they immediately canceled it. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds about right. This would have been a really interesting TV show. I'd be interested in seeing how this plays out. But <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And so Canal Plus, the French studio, negotiated for a year to get it turned into a feature instead. And while that negotiation was happening, he just kind of put it out of his mind. But suddenly, the year had passed, and it was done. And he was like, ah, crap, I don't know what to do about Mulholland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So he meditated that night, and normally he says meditation is a way for him to expand the net you use to catch ideas outside of meditation, not a way to get ideas in and of itself. But that night, they came like a string of pearls, including the romance between Rita and Betty and the events following the opening of the Blue Box, which are uh, pretty integral to what make this movie so important Mm -hmm. and so interesting. Oh, yeah. It's kind of the, the linchpin that everything hangs on here. Uh, pun sure, sort Lynch of intended. <laughs> in fact, I've tried to find a way to shoehorn that in. So, <laughs> Well, you did it. You did it swimming. <laughs> they got everyone back first, you know, after all this year, which was tough because everyone had gone their separate ways. The sets had been struck. Props were gone. The costumes were in the stream, as they say. So it was a challenge. But importantly, the ideas were finally there. And the star of the movie, Naomi Watts, who plays both Betty and Diane, was really happy about this change, feeling that without the additional darkness the new material brought to the movie, her character had been a little one-dimensional, which is interesting. You know, they had to kind of leave it open for development in the show, but I can imagine not being thrilled about, like, having, (laughs) having someone with no depth to start with. Yeah. Our other stars are Laura Elena Herring, who plays Rita and Camilla Rhodes, and Justin Theroux, who plays Adam Kesher, A host of Lynch regulars also make appearances, though, as do some old Hollywood types like Chad Everett and Ann Miller, and every single performance gets knocked out of the park, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. The other thing I was going to say, too, about those uh, old Hollywood types being in there is uh, I I think it's really interesting, the choices of, you know, actors and actresses there for the roles that they play in what goes on. I'll I'll have something to say about that a little later. (laughs) Well, I... Love these performances because the way that the story structure works means that the performances have to evolve 
as the movie goes, and so does our understanding of the performances in the beginning of the movie, you know? I think the, the, they're best described by Bob Brooker, a character in the movie, who says, the two of them with themselves, so don't play it for real until it gets real. <laughs> That's something that I think does tend to present a little bit of a challenge in trying to get people to watch this movie, because I feel like when I put it on, the performances at the beginning are very over-the-top and purposely kind of campy oh yeah and people are like oh this sucks yeah. <laughs> no, like, no right off the bat like i i just watched this with a friend recently and it, he was just like laughing at, at the start when uh naomi watts betty first arrives in uh hollywood and everything there mm-hmm. like there's kind of that overdubbed audio over the like people acting in that super corny <laughs> like huge facial expression way and um, it wasn't until about halfway through the movie at a different point where he says, oh, wow, this is actually a good movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> that, that checks out. When the movie came out, it was mostly well regarded, even by noted lynch hater and blue hip villain Roger Ebert, who, quote, forgave him for wild at heart and even lost highway. Mm-hmm. Although no word about blue velvet. <laughs> There were those who didn't like it, though, of course, with accusations of Lynch being deliberately obtuse and opaque, but it's been deemed one of the most enduring and impressive works of the 21st century so far by several publications, and heck, us right here, whereas another one of Lynch's horror noir oeuvre, it's the best damn horror movie ever made. Mm-hmm. The best. <laughs> to get into the movie, or the plot, the movie puts you off balance right away, with these overcranked shadows leading into the jitterbug contest, and who should win but the lovely Betty, completely washed out with two elderly people over her shoulders a leering grin pasted onto their faces yeah got like big bug eyes and like smiles <laughs> uh, they're freaky as hell <laughs> and this leads to someone breathing heavily from first person as we sink into bed face first into a red pillowcase these red sheets will come back so keep an eye out for them mm-hmm. <laughs> speaking of we should also say that Uh, In the 2002 DVD of this movie, there was an insert that had 10 clues to unlocking this thriller. And so as we go through, we'll be pointing specific things out. The granular nature of the things that we're trying to like analyze are kind of prompted by the tone of this insert. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, well, the scene we just described is pretty much the first clue that he gives on that uh, thing there. Like, pay particular attention in the beginning of the film. Yeah, he says two two clues happen before the credits roll. (laughs) And speaking of, we're passing a street sign from Mulholland Drive and those credits do start to roll. And... It reveals this limo being ridden by a beautiful woman, but it stops unexpectedly as the drivers attempt to kill her. This assassination attempt is foiled by two groups of young people racing around the curves, smashing into the car. What a crash. This is like a really fun action scene. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Hey, you know, I mean, my mom always warned me about like recklessly driving around and partying as a high school or something like that. But in this situation, they saved a woman's life. So, so true. <laughs> Well, this woman does stagger out, dazed as hell, but alive, and she looks over the cliffs at L.A. (laughs) She heads down to Sunset Boulevard and takes shelter in an older woman's apartment. This is Aunt Ruth, who's leaving to make a movie in Canada. Really great shot uh, of the woman cowering under the table, only revealed by panning down after Aunt Ruth comes to grab her keys from it. It's a very iconic shot of the movie. It looks great. Oh, yeah. Also worth noting, Sunset Boulevard is a really important reference point for this movie, It's another fantastic movie about the way Hollywood chews people up and spits them out, both Norma and Joe alike. 
who also have a messed up codependent relationship. It's from a different era though, so uh, 1950. So their generation is kind of represented through Aunt Ruth and the other old Hollywood types uh, who Aunt Ruth just left. She refuses to see what happens going forward. And Coco Lenoir, the apartment complex manager who ultimately sees through all the bullshit, but just nods with sad understanding. Mm -hmm. Coco is played by Ann Miller, right? Yep. She's just so good in this. (laughs) Next up is the famous Winkies scene. The guy is scared with his pal, and he sees someone behind the Winkies who slides out. This is one of the scenes where, if I tried to describe it, it would just it would be so unimpressive. Yeah. <laughs> so people should just go watch it. Yeah, definitely. You can. I think you can find this on YouTube. I'd be surprised if you couldn't. But uh, it, just watch the whole movie in general first of all, if you mm-hmm. haven't. But yeah. this scene was like the first point in this movie where I was like, "Whoa, okay!" When I saw this for the first time, <laughs> yeah, wasn't expecting this. <laughs> Definitely not. And there's an interesting correlation here where this guy comes to Winkies. He finally lives out his dream, and it almost kills him. <laughs> yeah, dreams and people dying from them. I, th- I think that might be a little important, or almost mm. dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Roke calls a guy who calls a guy who calls a guy saying the girl is still missing. Mm-hmm. This phone chain really implicates that the people with power are insulated throughout this whole thing. And the final call is to a phone under a red lamp, which is specifically one of the clues. Keep an eye out for the red lampshade. Mm-hmm. Betty arrives in L.A. with the two elderly people we saw earlier, and she's awestruck. The sound is overdubbed, like you said. She's giddy at the sign that says, Welcome to Los Angeles. (laughs) And they go their separate ways with the sickening smile still stretched long across after they get in the cab and drive away. Really unsettling, this whole Really unsettling. And then she gives him, like, that pat on the knee with her whole arm, like, flopping up and down. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. And it turns out Betty is going to the apartments we saw earlier because she's the niece that makes Aunt Rita an aunt. Or not Aunt Rita, excuse me, Aunt 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 Ruth Ruth an aunt. (laughs) Coco Lenoir lets her in and she explores a bit, stoked as hell, but she's shocked to find the accident victim in the dang shower. Mm -hmm. The woman can't remember her name or anything else, so she casts about for inspiration, settling on a poster of Rita Hayworth in Gilda and claiming that name for herself. And, you know, you mentioned that dreams are important. Betty talks a lot about dreams here in this moment. First, her dreams of being discovered. She says, although I'd rather be known as a great actress than a movie star. But, you know, sometimes people end up being both. Yeah. Which is very funny. And she also says, I just came here from Deep River, Ontario, and now I'm in this dream place. (laughs) That sort of blurring of the lines between what people expect about, like, their fantasies and, and what they anticipate living there like and being part of the industry being like is super crucial to this movie oh yeah at a movie studio adam kesher is having a meeting with the castigliani brothers to discuss recasting his main actress i believe luigi castigliani is angelo battlementi uh i don't know i'd have to probably just google it yeah yeah that's him he's luigi oh nice so there you go (laughs) oh angelo who's the mario The Castigliani brothers meeting is to discuss recasting his main actress. His agent is there too and nervous because it turns out the meeting is less for a suggestion and more so that an impossible to please Hollywood producer is demanding, this is the girl or you're fired. Mm -hmm. And well, that girl is not in the film, so it is no longer your film. Yeah. (laughs) 
they shut everything down at Mr. Roke's insistence. This is another really great scene, you know, him drinking the espresso oh, and, yeah. and freaking out everyone just going like everyone exploding all at once is fantastic. Oh yeah. I, w- I was waiting for you to mention that Yeah, when he, when he drinks the espresso <laughs> there and then just spits it right out on the napkin in front of him. And uh, the guy next to him is just yelling coffee. <laughs> it's just great stuff. Impossible to please. Yeah. Can't be done. Mm-hmm. Adam goes out and he takes a golf club to the Castigliani Bros limo before peeling out and driving home. He was holding that golf club the entire meeting. Yeah. <laughs> Just prepared for it. He was ready. Two kind of scummy looking dudes, Ed and Joe, are talking about the accident that we saw Rita escape from when scummy guy number two, Joe, kills Ed for his famous black book, The History of the World in Phone Numbers, he says. <laughs> While staging the crime scene, though, he accidentally shoots through the wall and hits someone else. This scene is just so fucking funny yeah. when the woman from Health Plus Enzymes is like, something bit me bad. Yeah, she's just screaming there. And he just immediately walks up and starts choking her into the hallway. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Amazing. And then the janitor sees them and he has to be like, can you come help, man? Yeah. <laughs> just trying to gag her like, please, I need your help. Call an ambulance. <laughs> Betty accidentally reveals the existence of Rita to Aunt Ruth, who wants her to call the cops, but Betty covers for her, and she confronts Rita about her not knowing Aunt Ruth, and she cries, and Betty is like, oh shit, this is just like a movie, I'm gonna help you get your memory back, baby. Rita checks her purse, she finds fat stacks of cash and a blue key with a unique triangle shape, but no wallet, and thus no ID. She doesn't remember anything except that she was going to Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. And so they call and confirm that there was a crash there. Bum, bum, bum. Dun, dun. Back behind the Winkies, Joe questions a prostitute about if she's seen Rita. And the hand-shaped bruise on her arm is brutal to look at. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's, it's intense. She, they, like, I just mean the, the production design is just is just great. Uh, you know, and, and, and them in this, like, scuzzy back alleyway and she she like looks like pleasant yeah but, she, like just the the costuming is so great yeah she's uh yeah she she's got like a really pleasant demeanor and seems to be talking nicely but you just see that big bruise on her arm and he's like forcing her into the back of like a shabby blue van there Ugh, <laughs> it's it's awful and also of course david lynch loves to use the color blue as a stand-in for like secrecy so yeah. that blue van is uh is not ideal as they all clamber into the back there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she also says that she hasn't seen Rita. Oh yeah. Time to check back in with Adam. He drives home to find his wife getting boned by Billy Ray Cyrus playing Gene clean. <laughs> He's been fixing her achy breaky heart. <laughs> oh, sure has. This is another amazing scene. He clocks Justin Thoreau in the face. Hey, mister, that ain't no way to treat your wife, buddy. I don't care what she's done. Yeah. Uh, Just amazing. Yeah, I love, too, when he walks in and they're both sitting there annoyed already. Not even, like, shocked. (laughs) They're just like, well, you had to fucking show up, didn't you? And then he's just like, hey, buddy, it's just best if you just forget about this and leave. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, turn around, buddy. It's better that way. Like, they're the ones being wronged. (laughs) At Winkies, Betty and Rita see a woman who looks an awful lot like Betty named Diane there. Mm-hmm. And Rita remembers the name Diane Selwyn. There's only one Diane Selwyn in the book, the phone book. So they call and it's not Rita's voice, but she does recognize it. So they're like, all right, we'll go and see if she knows anything about me. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Adam has moved to a seedy hotel when Cookie shows up 
to tell him that there's trouble with his line of credit. He's maxed out, and whoever is looking for him knows that he's hiding there. Mm-hmm. This guy's fun. He shows up twice in the movie. He's oh, also yeah. the MC at the end. <laughs> Uh, he's great. He's a very fun little, uh, small role here. Yeah. Love that big white mustache. It's like a, <laughs> yeah. with the, like his still colored hair. It's like a reverse Karl Marx. <laughs> wow. So true. So true. <laughs> he, Adam calls his secretary who confirms that he's broke and tells him the cowboy wants to see him up at the corral at the top of Beechwood Canyon. <laughs> Cynthia also offers to let him stay at her place. And when he declines, she says, you don't know what you're missing. Uh, which is, you know, of course, kind of playing into sort of the thematics of this movie. Oh, yeah. An older woman comes to the apartment saying someone is in trouble. And when Betty says, like, can I help you? I'm Ruth's niece. My name is Betty. The woman is like, no, it's not. You know, another unnerving scene. But it's so funny to me that they, like, have this sequence. And then David Lynch, like, that feels like a very Lynchian moment, of course, to have this woman appear out of nowhere and start spouting gibberish at her yeah but then for for um coco to come up and be like oh god sorry this is louise she's a little little half cracked here she's just kind of like that (laughs) yeah it's it's very funny that it's like even in the context of the movie they understand and they're like okay well we should explain this a little bit (laughs) and coco says this is louise by the way here are some facts over lines for your audition tomorrow one of my favorite like little performance moments in this whole movie is when Betty closes the door and just goes, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Next, we have the scene with the cowboy. Incredible. Just so fucking good. Adam heads up there to that, to that ranch, and the cowboy appears out of nowhere telling him that a man's attitude goes some way in how his life will be. Yeah, and then he responds like, yeah, totally, I agree with that, and just goes like... <laughs> Did you just say you agree with that because you actually hold it in your heart or because you just thought it was what I wanted to hear? <laughs> oh. It's it, I laughed so hard when he's like, okay, then what did I say? Yeah. And he repeats it back perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> like He actually did listen. Oh, it's great. I think it's also interesting here. Um, I think uh, the guy who's playing that is like a producer that had worked with Lynch a little bit. And uh, apparently he's wearing the clothes of the actor Tom Mix, like his actual clothes. Mm-hmm. Famous cowboy back in the day yeah one of the first big hollywood uh, cowboys <laughs> really cool contribution to that again pulling the old hollywood stuff into it mm. he also tells adam that he's driving the buggy to the top and if he fixes his attitude he could come along <laughs> all he has to do is pick the girl in the picture for the actress that's the one thing that's not up to him <laughs> now you'll see me one more time if you do good you'll see me two, two more times. times if you do bad <laughs> good night <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. It's just really great. Yeah. It's also funny gag. This is a very funny movie, by the way, where they go back to Betty and Rita, and it seems like they're fighting before it pulls out to reveal the script that she's working on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this rehearsal is corny. It's stilted. It's overdramatic. It's not good. And they literally laugh about it in the moment. Mm-hmm. Coco comes to check on the whole Rita sitch, and she sees right through Betty's bullshit, but trusts her to figure it out. And so off Betty heads to the famous Paramount lot with the car from Sunset Boulevard parked right out in front. This lot entrance also looks a lot like the entrance to the apartments i felt was worth noticing yeah and it's here that she has her audition for a distracted director and a skeezy scene partner literally named woody (laughs) and again she knocks it out of the park it's completely different from the tone of the rehearsal with rita earlier it's seductive measured betty finishes to much acclaim and i mean this scene what a 
dramatic shift. You know, you talk about these moments that really make you kind of reframe the movie and what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And for me, this is like the big moment where you realize that there's much, much more to this movie. Oh, yeah. It's like a huge kind of subversion of what you're expecting there, too, especially because like just in the prior scene, they were rehearsing it. and It seemed kind of hokey and they were literally commenting about how this is such a melodramatic script that it's all worthless. But then you get in there and she immediately seems to get like so into the role that uh, it's it's kind of shocking how much it draws you in right away. And I, I also think this is one of the most important scenes in the movie, I think, for like doing a little bit of interpretation later on. Yeah. This and the things that follow. Well, so what follows is Betty finishes. She gets walked out by Linny James, a casting director who was watching the audition. And, and she says, that project is a dead end. But honey, I've got something else great for you. And what where she takes her is the Sylvia North story, which is the movie that Adam has been working on. And we see some of the auditions happening there as well with the current girl who's auditioning, Carol, being extremely interested and also very good. This is a lot of fun. I like that it's decently long and we get to listen to her sing for a while. Mm -hmm. David, I think, is really great at incorporating music into his work. Oh, yeah. He's always been good at that. He always finds good original soundtracks that are always so memorable. Mm -hmm. I mean, since I finished watching this movie today, like the the music from the drive down Mulholland in, in the first shot where uh, Reed is in the car is uh, that's just been stuck in my head <laughs> everything has seemed rather ominous uh, today but <laughs> yeah that'll do it it's all great you know uh, the the score is always great the Lou Reed in in Lost Highway and uh, the Roy Orbison in Blue Velvet and even in this you know oh, yeah. Rebecca Del Rio sings crying a, a Spanish cover of it and it's really fantastic. Mm -hmm. Also interesting is that this audition is with a Connie Stevens song who had kind of a middle of the road career, but is famously felt like she got passed over a lot and never got to peak because, quote, I wanted to be a big star, but do I have to throw tantrums and behave badly to get there? Can't I just be talented and work hard and be happily married? And so this is part of not to tilt my hand too much, but part of what I love about this movie so much is that everything is something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, looking into this song choice even a little bit reveals so much more about the movie and everything plays into it. It's just so incredible. I don't know how I hadn't picked up on that before, so thank you for giving me another piece to dive into. <laughs> <laughs> in walks Betty, just in time to see the next girl auditioning, Camilla Rhodes. And this is the girl, mm -hmm. despite her audition being much less impressive. <laughs> oh, yeah. One thing I want to note here that will, like, make a little more sense later in the plot summary is if you notice, like, the, the first audition that's there, the singing seems a lot more, like, realistic. Like, you can almost kind of believe that she's singing it uh, just partially from the way that it's, like, produced there in the moment. Yeah. But this one, it's, like, very obvious that the actress is lip syncing along to a backing track. It's, it's totally less well-rounded and everything. You know, the first audition has several backing members as well mm -hmm. this is just her a stark contrast <laughs> very much so adam says this is the girl and one of the castigliani brothers emerges from the shadows to say excellent choice adam <laughs> betty sees this and she leaves to get rita she takes a taxi over to diane selwyn's apartment and finds a woman who looks a lot like rita and she directs them over to number 17 instead of the number 12 and I'm going to start preparing my tinfoil hat here and say the number seven looks a lot like a flipped upside down number two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. 
And she says that her and Diane switched, and that's why she needs to go over there. And she also says that she's going to come with them because Diane still has some of her stuff from a few weeks ago. Although Diane hasn't been around in a few days, and she gets distracted by a phone call. So she's like, all right, you guys go ahead, and I'll catch up with you. Mm -hmm. I think that this woman is very important. (laughs) Yeah, she's got a very small role in this movie, but, like, uh, what is there is, like, really important stuff. Even, like, some of it relates directly into the clues that uh, Lynch gave in that little insert, so. (laughs) As the woman said, nobody's home, but Betty pulls another surprisingly bold move and breaks in. Mm Mm-hmm. And it stinks. Yeah. (laughs) Smells real bad. (laughs) And the reason for that is because they find a hideously decomposing blonde body in the bedroom. Rita freaks out and they leave with this cool like after image effect as she clutches at her face. You know, the after image, the doubling up of it and the possible multiple identities that we'll get into later. Oh, yeah. Really just a a nice little allusion to it. Even without the possible metaphorical sense that that effect could be used in. It's just a cool effect. It's like it's yeah. like the video equivalent of a delay pedal. Yeah. <laughs> I want to use it. <laughs> Trippy. They they run back to the apartment and Rita is crying and she starts to chop at her hair, but <laughs> Betty convinces her to stop, giving her a wig that looks really close to her own hair. Oh yeah. Now, lots of reference throughout this movie to Ingmar Bergman's persona both in terms of the entangling of identities and codependence again, but also specifically with this scene where the two main characters of Persona give each other haircuts that look very like each other, and then they like stand next to each other and be like, wow, we look exactly the same, and that's what happens in this as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that movie also rocks for people who haven't seen it. B.B. Uh, Anderson is outrageously good in it, so check out all, all of the movies that I've mentioned so far. Sunset Boulevard, Persona, this one, all three of them absolutely deserve a watch. Yeah. I haven't seen Sunset Boulevard, but Persona is a great movie. I've only seen that once, but I, I very much would like to look into that again. Similar themes in that, I think, of like identity kind of with this one. but oh. Definitely, definitely. And Rita comes to say goodnight, and ultimately she and Betty wind up having sex together here. Oh, yeah. Rita doesn't know if she's done this before, and Betty never has but wants to with her. And my gay little heart beats with thunder. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the way that it is, like, framed in terms of, like, it doesn't feel leering to me Mm -hmm. is really nice that it it feels like so many male directors in particular would make that a lascivious scene. And I don't think that that's the case. It really feels like these two characters connecting. Yeah, it, it feels, like, kind of romantic. It's not, like, super, like, sexualized and, like, it's not supposed to be extremely titillating and, and pleasing the audience. Right. I think it feels like a real character moment. Definitely. And the innocence dynamic is interesting here as well, with Rita sleeping in the nude and Betty in buttoned-up soft pink PJs that are covering pretty much her entire body. Mm-hmm. But... Betty is the one who leans in for a real kiss first. Mm -hmm. Betty also says, I'm in love with you twice. No reciprocation, which I think is interesting. It's, uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, Betty. Like, we've all been down this road before, but, uh, you know, you'll power through it. She she moved very fast. Yeah. (laughs) That night slash early morning, it's 2 a.m., Rita starts talking in her sleep with her eyes wide open, saying, silencio, no haibando, and all kinds of stuff. And she wakes up and asks Betty to come with her to Club Silencio. <laughs> and goddamn, this Club Silencio scene. <laughs> yeah, this this is probably the most striking scene of the whole movie right away. 
Um, it's incredible. The conductor looks exactly like Michael Keaton, right? Doesn't he? Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to trying to make that happen. Every time I tell someone, I'm like, that guy looks just like Michael Keaton. They're like, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's interesting, because I was thinking of the guy before with the white mustache, who appears here again. Mm-hmm. He looks kind of like George Carlin, <laughs> but I don't know. I could see it, but with a mustache. Well, so this guy, the conductor comes out. He says, no high banda. There is no band. Everything we're about to hear is an illusion that's been taped already. And a blue-haired woman watches from a fancy box seat while Rita and Betty do the same from the audience as Betty starts to shake. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's uh, also, like, blue lights flashing, which I think is a yes. big thing there. Really cool. And, again, this is another scene where just describing it really won't do it justice. The orchestration, him fucking around on stage is great. And then it concludes in Cookie coming out to introduce Rebecca Del Rio, who sings, like I said, a Spanish cover of Roy Orbison's Crying. Mm-hmm. In the middle, though... She collapses, and the song plays on. And you can imagine the demonstration of this illusion shattering for someone moved to tears by it could cause some emotional upheaval because Betty is sitting there sobbing at this at this song. Oh, yeah. And then for it to get pulled out from under her feet like that and say, yeah, no, it really is nothing <laughs> is, is brutal. <laughs> Betty reaches into her purse and she finds a blue box with a triangle-shaped keyhole whoa they rush home and betty vanishes when rita goes for the key to unlock the box rita broke this illusion the innocence of betty is dead and rita is part of the conspiracy of silence when her pov is sucked into the empty box before it drops to the ground and who should come in at that point but aunt ruth (laughs) yeah shows up again and i'm wondering with the scene with aunt ruth it almost seems like it's like uh supposed to be like this is happening before like earlier in the film I don't know, Uh, because it seems like she was coming and looking to see if someone was there, kind of like when Rita first snuck in. But I don't know what I'm getting at there. That was just the thing that struck me this time, and I don't have anything to expound on with it. So, (laughs) Well, I I think it is interesting. It does look like she's looking around for people. I think that this is just kind of saying again, like the the old Hollywood types who refuse to see anything. Oh, yeah. And who, who... you know, she went away while everything was happening. Now that everything is done, she comes back. She looks around. Oh, I don't see anything. I guess everything is fine. Mm-hmm. And she just goes back into the living room. <laughs> True. Okay. We fade to black and we fade back in on a girl who is in the same position as the dead girl from earlier, but she doesn't look quite as decomposed. Yeah. You can't tell who it is from the back, but the cowboy walks in and says, hey, pretty girl, time to wake up. The lights pulse, and suddenly, there she is, looking much more rotted again. Yeah. (laughs) Gross. And he leaves. One more pulse, same time. But now there's a knocking at the door, and the body stirs. Mm -hmm. It looks like Betty, but she's disgruntled and less perfectly put together. And she heads to the door and sees the brunette from earlier. Yeah. (laughs) What the the hell's going on here? What the heck? (laughs) (laughs) She calls this woman Diane, right? Yeah, she she says, uh, yes. Diane, it's been three weeks. I need my stuff. <laughs> okay, yes. She called, okay, the brunette calls the blonde woman Diane. Mm-hmm. I was like, what the fuck does this sentence mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she collects her stuff, including a piano ashtray, and she complains about how long it's been again. Mm-hmm. And next to that ashtray is a blue key, although this one is normal shaped. Yeah, no triangles Ooh. here. <laughs> Just uh, <laughs> just your classic key, but blue. 
She also mentions two detectives looking for Diane. This was something that just occurred to me very, very recently, like literally 10 minutes before we hopped on this call, but could be Betty and Rita, yeah. like she was, like they were looking for Diane, or it could be Robert Forster and Brent Briscoe who were looking for the missing girl from the assassination at the beginning. Yeah, I, either one. We see them on the case. Wow. I like to. I totally forgot about those two detectives until uh, until this comes back. But one of the deleted scenes is them still being on the case. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that that probably plays a little bit into uh, that as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it, it took a long time because. It- those guys you can almost kind of miss them i always assumed that that was just uh, betty and rita from before but now it, uh, i don't have an end to this sentence so <laughs> <laughs> well it's just classic incompetent police who are way behind the entire time anyway mm-hmm. don't do anything to help anyone yeah, in this movie <laughs> there were too many dogs they had to go shoot it was <laughs> i guess so yeah i guess so <laughs> diane is just miserably staring out the window when she turns to the side and she's delighted to see rita who just appeared, but now she's being called Camilla. Mm-hmm. What the heck? I don't know. There's some funky going on with the names here. <laughs> Turns out this was just a hallucination, though, and Diane goes between rage and misery as she makes shitty instant coffee in her dingy apartment. <laughs> I do think it's interesting, though, that like when we learn that it is an illusion, it flashes to Diane with that kind of terrified, raged look on her face, and then it cuts back, and it was exactly where Camilla was standing. Now we see Diane looking, like, resigned and making her morning coffee. It's mm, really good stuff. Oh, it's yeah. really good stuff. <laughs> Playing with that shot, reverse shot. <laughs> she also has another vision of Camilla there nude on the couch and has a memory of the two of them. The camera focuses pretty intensely on the coffee table where the piano ashtray that just left with the brunette is back. So we know we're in the past again. Mm -hmm. And they smooch, and Camilla says, you drive me wild, before switching tones and saying, we shouldn't do this anymore. Diane freaks out and tries to touch her, but is stopped by Camilla, and she says, I've tried to tell you this before, to which Diane retorts, it's him, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Memory within memory, as Diane walks onto set and sees Adam putting his arm around Camilla as part of a demonstration, He clears the set, and Camilla asks if Diane can stay, which he agrees to, then lays a kiss on her, and Camilla kisses back, and he kills the light while Diane looks on furiously. Yeah, and he's, like, directing the actor in the scene how he wants him to act, but he's doing it in a way that's, like, almost like, hey, here's how you get a little sleazy with the ladies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Diane kicks Camilla out of the apartment and says, it's not easy for me, so I'm not going to make it easy for you. And she cries and masturbates on the couch, but can't climax by herself. Mm. Her vision blurs, and there's a call, and it's the phone under the red lampshade again mm-hmm. that eventually Mr. Roke's call made it to. And this call is from Camilla, who asks if Diane is coming. The car has been waiting for her outside <laughs> to take her to 6980 <laughs> Mulholland Drive. She, she asks if Diane is coming, but as we could see from the previous scene, she just can't anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, uh, (laughs) Very true. Very true. Another flash of the street sign, like earlier for Mulholland Drive, and Betty is brought to where Camilla's car stopped earlier and repeats the line, what are you doing? We don't stop here. Mm -hmm. Camilla then emerges from the trees and takes her hand for a shortcut, a beautiful secret path to the top that Diane didn't know about. Mm -hmm. Up they go, and it's a party at Adams where Diane's mood crashes once again. 
They toast to love, which really upsets her. Yeah. And the real Coco emerges. She's Adam's mother. (laughs) Diane tells her backstory to Coco, which is the same as Betty's. She's here from Deep River, Ontario, vis-a-vis the Jitterbug contest. She says she met Camilla on the Sylvia North story, and she wanted the lead so bad, but Camilla got the part. Meanwhile, Camilla and Adam are all lovey-dovey on the opposite side. Mm -hmm. Camilla says a line in Spanish that basically denies sleeping with Luigi for the part. Coco has heard this one before, and she is disapproving of Camilla and comforting to Diane. Yeah, when she hears that Camilla used to help her out with getting parts, she kind of gives her a tap on the hand and says, I see, like a little resigned thing. And the guy there says that Bob Brooker is the director of the Sylvia North story, not Adam. And Diane says he didn't like me much. (laughs) Meanwhile, after their bit of PDA, Adam is smoking and Camilla's hair is all mussed up. Classic post-coital look. (laughs) And Diane continues saying after that, like you said, Camilla helped her get some parts in her movies. Oh, yes. Over coffee, Adam is saying, I got the pool and she got the pool, man. (laughs) Funny line. Diane looks over and sees one of the Castigliani brothers staring at her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's uh, it's interesting that perhaps she had been with Luigi for parts as Camilla was so quick to distance herself from. Um, and it feels a little like a, a pointed shot at Diane, especially with some of my interpretation that we'll get into. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or maybe he's just looking at her going like, Where, where's my coffee? I want to spit it out. <laughs> Um, He needs that espresso. Adam has one. Why doesn't he? Camilla the blonde that we saw auditioning comes over and she whispers in Camilla the brunette's ears and then gives her a deep Judas smooch of betrayal (laughs) that leaves some of the brunette's deep red lipstick stained on the blonde's lips. (laughs) And Diane is just miserable and sees the blonde disappear behind a corner that the cowboy emerges from, passing through without word. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. <laughs> Adam starts to make an announcement, but he and Camilla devolve into giggles before he can get it out. It seems like he's leading towards saying that they're going to be married. Yeah. Harsh cut. Diane at a Winkies with Joe, the scumbag from before. And they're being served by another blonde waitress that looks like Diane. This time, her name is Betty. Yeah. Interesting. Like, yeah, the the first time she's got that Betty tag. Now she's got the Diane tag. So just she pulled it. She pulled the name for her fantasy from somewhere. (laughs) Diane gives Joe Camilla's headshot and says, this is the girl, along with a big stack of cash. Her dream is gone at this point. She says this is what she wants more than anything in the world, which I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. And Joe shows her a blue key, the one that we saw earlier, and says, when you're done, you'll find this where I told you. Clearly, it was done at some point, and we see that she has collected the key. The camera goes behind the Winkies again with ominous red light, and we see the guy behind the Winkies playing with the blue box and eventually putting it into a bag. From that bag emerges a tiny, hysterically laughing version of the two old people from the beginning who brought Betty to L.A. Uh Truly scary. You know, everyone always talks about the person behind the Winkies being very frightening. Mm -hmm. But these two old people rushing at you and, like, cackling and trying to pinch at you, very, very frightening. Oh, yeah. Terrifying. The camera holds on the blue key before showing a fucked-up Diane. (laughs) There's a pounding at the door, and in rush the old people. They're suddenly big again, chasing her into her room, Mm -hmm. where she grabs a gun and shoots herself on the bed with the same red sheets we sank to at the very beginning. Oh, yeah. 
Fog rolls in, and we see a soft image of the man behind the Winkies who fades to an aerial shot of L.A. at night with Betty, very clearly Betty based on the hair, superimposed on front, completely washed out, and smiling with Rita, who looks serious. This is, again, feels very much like Sunset Boulevard. Diane goes back to her delirium. Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. We're going to have to check that out after this. <laughs> it's really great. Uh, you, you won't regret it. <laughs> And it really finally ends, goes back to Club Silencio with nothing on stage, but the blue-haired woman still overlooking it, and she whispers, Silencio. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. It's so good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so that is that is the step-by-step of what we see on screen. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the part where you do your first level of interpretation on. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so basically, we'll now move into the uh, interpretation section of this podcast, where we'll talk about the first layer, which is the actual story, and then uh, we'll lay in the second layer, the themes of fuck Hollywood <laughs> that David Lynch is trying to communicate. I, I figured that the way that we could do this is like just go like one at a time, and then we'd be like, all right, here's what, uh, here's what I had different, or here's what I think does work from yours. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, yeah, yeah. We can kind of go with that one at a time. Or did we want to do like the the kind of literal interpretation together or are we going to do that separate too? So it's kind of baked into my thematics interpretation as well. Okay. So I think it'll, I think it'll probably be better to just go. It'll probably be more annoying to people to have to just listen to each of us talk for a long time, but fuck them. Uh, (laughs) So the majority of this movie takes place in a dream. Not only a literal dream, but one that represents the Hollywood dream and making it big. What happened to Diane as filtered through our collective understanding of Hollywood. Because for so many of us who haven't actually been to Hollywood, it only exists as it's shown to us in the media that they themselves create. Yeah, It's the propaganda wing of an industry desperate to keep up appearances. And we see the glitz, we see the glam, the celebrities and the movie portrayals of the town that have created an image of Hollywood in our mind. And so in this dream, Hollywood is exactly like it is in the movies. But in reality, the Hollywood dream is just movie magic a facade in front of the city like any other, and an industry perhaps worse than others, full of abuse and anger and regret. Mm -hmm. Because of this Hollywood dream state we find ourselves in at the beginning, everyone plays a shiny new role. Betty is the Hollywood dream version of Diane, and we have Rita, her dependent friend and eventual lover, named both textually and externally in reference to Rita Hayworth, who had several famous marriages and affairs with the Hollywood elite, after a traumatic childhood where she was both assaulted and molded for showbiz by her father. Yeah. I think that Diane has gotten so fucked up from her time in Hollywood that people are, like, completely interchangeable to her. This is confirmed by her seeing Adam directing the Sylvia North story when everyone later says that it was Bob Brooker directing it, the same Bob Brooker who she auditioned for and then fantasizes about several excuses why it's a good thing she actually wouldn't get that part. And that's why Rita and Camilla are addressed as the same person, too, for the conclusion, this this projection and, and swapping people. Camilla is really the blonde, but Diane has projected the quote-unquote stain of the one who introduced her to the idea of the casting couch onto Camilla, because Camilla took advantage of the casting couch. And here's where this gets really tricky, is <laughs> Rita 
is the fantasy version of the brunette woman we see in the investigation. <laughs> and to me, this works for a few reasons. First, they really make a point of their apartment switch. They point it out a lot. And before Betty arrives in California, we have already seen the phone ring under the red lampshade down the chain from Mr. Roke, implicating whoever was there in the conspiracy. So that's the woman that we see switching the apartment in, in 17 or 12 or whichever the new one is. <laughs> now, that red lampshade is also next to the phone that Diane picks up later when Camilla calls to say that the, the car is waiting. Mm -hmm. The second reason this works for me is that if Diane got a fantasy version of herself, why shouldn't Rita? And the reason that this persists is because that fantasy seductress version of Rita that beat out Diane for the role she auditioned for becomes representational of the casting couch in Diane's mind. So their relationship, Rita and Betty, is more about seeing the casting couch work and using it for herself. You know, when they have sex and Diane says, I'm in love with you twice with no reciprocation, it's because the casting couch loves nobody. It just uses them. And she is in love with the idea of being a movie star. She is using this as a way to get parts. Mm -hmm. Eventually, she gets into a relationship with Camilla, and presumably stops doing this, but she sees Camilla kiss Adam in the car and understands that Camilla has no such qualms, leading to their breakup. Again, because Fantasy Rita is so emblematic of the casting couch to her, Camilla becomes conflated with her and is who we see. This is brought to a head by the brunette Camilla staining blonde Camilla's mouth with the deep red lipstick because they share this secret now. And Camilla then heads behind the corner where success emerges once more. Adam had gone to the ranch at the top of Beechwood Canyon underneath the Hollywood sign, worth noting, <laughs> taking the straightforward path up to that success as represented by the cowboy and playing ball when the producers wanted to strong arm him. And so he cast real Rita in that. And now the ethical levies break and he's willing to sleep with Camilla. Another road in real life that leads up to the Hollywood sign, and success in this case, is Mulholland Drive in real life. Yeah. And according to Lynch, the real street is dark and twisting, much like this story. <laughs> it's an alternate path to success for those willing to chance it. And although Rita lost her memory and she's back to being innocent in the fantasy, it is impossible to stay that way in Hollywood. And she confesses to Betty taking her to Club Silencio, where the facade of the Hollywood dream is revealed to, to Diane slash Betty, uh, how hollow it is, and the obtrusive silence of the cover-up. You know, we see Betty start to shake as she starts to come to grips with this, and it's only when Rita steadies her that she starts to calm down. To find this box that matches the blue key Rita revealed earlier, she gave her the key to this, this illusion, and, uh, you know, like we said, this it's all over this scene, the, the blue, mm -hmm. which is, represents secrecy very frequently for Lynch. Now, Diane came to Hollywood, had her illusions destroyed. She saw people getting parts, not through just talent, but through the casting couch. The box gets unlocked and swallows up Rita because she was part of it. And Diane now understands there's this alternative path and the prison of secrecy that she puts herself in by meeting Joe, Scumbag 2, the hitman in the story at Winkies. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. There's, there's a lot to get through here. <laughs> there's so much to get through. <laughs> Winkies is Hollywood itself, a bright chain with a dark secret just around back. Lynch has recollected how the Denny's on Sunset Boulevard 
used to be a place called the Copper Penny. And in the golden days of Hollywood, that's where the extras would line up looking for work. And Winkies is a direct stand-in. You know, we see another Hollywood hopeful come in. He sees Diane making a deal with Joe, the guy who went behind in the dream and, and saw the guy... Uh, and he's jolted into understanding. Yeah. Suddenly, he too sees the darkness behind the diner, and uh, living out the Hollywood dream uh, puts, sends him into a depression as well. Almost kills him. Mm-hmm. In the story, Joe is a literal killer who Diane hires to kill Camilla, and this prompts her guilt to drive her mad and kill herself. But in the larger story, I think that Joe assassinates dreams in a way. The predator who finds women to feed to the machine. When Diane tells Joe that this is the girl and points to a photo of Rita, Diane isn't just asking for him to kill Camilla. Diane is accepting that she wants what Camilla has and will do the casting couch for the key to the back door. The same way that everyone has their own non-fantasy version, I think that Joe is the real-life version of the cowboy, the sleazy, seedy side of the success story, who's willing to take advantage of women like Diane. Mm-hmm. Joe had met with Ed, who had laughingly regaled him with the story of the car accident, only to be quickly shot. Uh, Ed is a casting agent laughing about a car accident, someone using the casting couch, and Joe wants Ed's famous black book, which is the names of women who've been given keys to Hollywood's back entrance, uh, because Ed can't keep quiet about these car accidents, uh, so Joe doesn't hesitate to cover things up. But obviously... We have heard of the casting couch before. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an open secret. I think that that plays into how poorly Joe covers it up. You know, he winds up having to kill two other people in this effort. It's kind of uh, the loose lips that might have sunk them, but now he has blown it way, way wider yeah. by trying to cover it up. <laughs> After she makes the deal, Diane is hiding in her apartment away from judging eyes which, by the way, an apartment with blue walls, more secrets trapping her in. (laughs) And at some point, the casting couch stopped working for Diane. Camilla says we shouldn't do this anymore, but also it's Rita, the representation of the casting couch, saying we shouldn't do this anymore. And Diane felt guilty already anyway. And so when Camilla calls her to invite her to the party, she accepts because she is is frustrated at, at the state of her life. And Diane is on her way to the top, literally, in the limo, when they're stopped at the same place that Rita was born in the accident. She's on her way to success up at the top of Beachwood Canyon in Mulholland Drive, and she's stopped in the same place for a car accident that Rita was. Yeah, and she gets shown a secret, uh, like a secret path, uh, you know, a shortcut to the top. Exactly. Camilla takes her up this shortcut to success. She even helps her get roles in movies along the way. And the reveal of Camilla's engagement, I think, also comments on this being an entrenched issue, as this is a theoretical permanent link between the casting couches and the directors. And uh, the innocence of her dreams, Diane's dreams of Betty, haunt her, and her guilt over what she's done to Betty, actualized in the form of the older couple from the Jitterbug contest, who pursues her until she can take it no more and shoots herself. The movie fades out on the image of the city having claimed another. I think that it is ultimately her guilt over using the casting couch combined with her girlfriend leaving her for uh, for Adam Kesher mm-hmm. is uh, is the thing that, that pushes her over the edge. Okay. Whew. 
Okay, that's it for me. Okay, well, yeah, I think a lot of what you said is uh, stuff I agree with, although I'll, I'll take this to a, a slightly different level where I, I think that Diane and Camilla, as they are in the movie, aren't actually even two separate people. They're just two aspects of that same person. And essentially, mm-hmm. in the end, when Diane kills herself... She's not actually killing herself. She's killing off the part of herself that still had that dream version of Hollywood and everything in her head because she had to kill off the Camilla earlier, which was the part of herself that did the things that you had to do to get ahead in that industry. Yeah. No, I agree with a lot of that. Like, I I guess, like, the thing that, like, literally goes on in the movie is basically uh, Naomi Watts' character, Diane, just kind of, like, moves to L.A. with dreams of being a movie star. She meets Camilla who is uh, Laura Elena Herring, who helps her, you know, get parts in various films and gets Diane's career started. You know, they become lovers, but eventually Camilla leaves Diane for Adam Kesher, and Diane is devastated by that and takes a hit out on Camilla, and uh, afterwards, like, lays down to sleep and has a dream about the ways that she thinks she wishes things could have gone right and that's what like the whole first two hours of the movie are you know there's a sinister conspiracy there's like fun sleuthy mystery and everything for them to go in and she amazes people in an audition with her acting skills for a job that isn't even worth her while uh, <laughs> according to the other people i think like in, in a more metaphorical subtext like you know obviously like you were saying camilla and diane are the same person you can see that hinted at a lot in the movie like rita who is kind of Camilla in the dream, like Herring's character, puts on the wig that makes her look an awful lot like Diane, as well as kind of like the classic idea of a a Hollywood actress from like the golden era. And what I was mentioning before with that kind of shot, reverse shot, we see Diane say like, Camilla, you came back, and it cuts to Camilla, and she's standing there, and then cut back to Diane, Mm. who is suddenly like distraught and everything. And when we cut back... Diane is in the same spot that Camilla was in the frame, but just kind of carrying on with things, where we see that kind of process going on there. She um, is thinking like, oh, maybe this option is still open to me before like realizing like, no, I can't keep doing this anymore. Like, look what it has made me become, like the misery that I'm in in my life. So I think, sorry, I'm kind of rambly here. My notes are a little all over the place, and I'd organized it a little bit differently than you had, I think. But <laughs> the movie is basically trying to say that they're two aspects of the same person. Diane is the one who lives in the glamorized, dreamy version of Hollywood and stardom, and Camilla is the one who lives in the dark reality of what actually goes on in showbiz. And whoever this person is that they're both aspects of... Uh, realizes that they have grown to hate the part of themselves that Camilla is representing and decide to cut that out of their life, she has to then also give up on the Diane part of her life, the the Diane aspect of what Diane represents being like the, the dream of making it big in Hollywood, the way that it's always been shown to us on screen and everything like that. Which is when she shoots herself in the head at the end after being chased by those old people. But yeah... <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of what my interpretation was there. And I I think you can see it in all sorts of different places in the film, too. Even just when they go in and they see the the blonde corpse in there, I love this theory, frankly. I I think that I could very easily be swayed back to it (laughs) because there is certainly an element of it feeling like she has to kill the innocent part of herself. Mm -hmm. And like you say, playing ball in Hollywood means having to do a lot of nasty stuff, at least as depicted in this movie. And the idea of Rita existing there 
to sort of like steady her and everything, we see her hold her hand at Club Silencio and, and stop her from shaking there and everything. Mm-hmm. It does feel like there's a lot of implications that they could be two pieces of the same whole. Yeah, but yeah, that's a big thing too. And I think another part is... Oh, I'm sorry, not another part of that, but a- another thing I want to note in this movie also is the recurring stuff with colors. Like, obviously, we had talked about blue being the color of secrecy, and that's kind of like a recurring lynch thing. But I think the color red is also a really important one in this movie. Yeah. And they're kind of presented as being diametrically opposed in here. Obviously, like, red shows up in the red lampshade, which we noted is like one of the big things in the clues there. But also, when you think about it, I mean, I don't know if everyone else feels this way, but in my mind, red is kind of the color of like classic show business and stuff like that. You think of like the red carpet, red curtains in a theater and things like that. Classic red lipstick on all these old actresses and things. Another aspect as far as red is concerned is there's an element of selling your body in order to get this part. And red is commonly associated with sex work as well. You know, you get the red light district. And we also see that Rita and Camilla wear a lot of red in this movie. We also see Definitely. it on, on like uh, Coco and on the cowboy with the bandana around his neck. All these people are kind of like representations of old Hollywood and the idea there. Like Coco, obviously, with her being played by an older actress and seeming to warn Diane about danger all the time. Uh, someone who's been in the place and is familiar with what's going on while still wearing the outward appearance of the dream. Like, it seems like it worked out for her. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, like, blue being the colors of the secrets and the conspiracy, the reality of what everything is. We see blue, like you said, on the inside of Diane's apartment. Woody... The creepy guy that Diane does that audition with, he's wearing all blue there, too. He's got, like, a blue shirt with a blue suit. And obviously there's the blue-haired lady in Club Silencio. But I think Club Silencio is, like, a really interesting mixture of both red and blue. Because when they walk in, the whole place is red, the curtains, the seats... But when they announce that it's all an illusion, then we get the flashes of blue and the blue-haired lady, where this is kind of a place where the things mingle and mix, where the realization comes upon Diane in the film. Yeah. Yeah, even the lady who sings Crying, the Roy Orbison song, Rebecca Del Rio, she's wearing like a red dress and red lipstick. Big red teardrop on her face. Yeah, red teardrop and the like sunset eyeshadow that looks amazing uh but um she was actually at a so i saw this movie at a drive-in with a double feature of firewalk with me and she was there and was very nice oh that's awesome yeah just a minor interjection that's a that's a hell of a double feature yeah it was great yeah that's really cool But yeah, and then we see her playing along with the illusion until suddenly dropping dead. It's kind of like the lady in red there with the representing the dreamy aspect of Hollywood has died, leaving only reality behind it. But I don't know. It was an interesting thing I wanted to mention there, I guess. I agree. I think we didn't talk about the red that much, but but we did point it out a lot. I think it is very deliberate. I think you're right. I think it's interesting also that that reader just is is so so red focused when there is so much blue around everyone else you know it really does make the the her and camilla stuff feel like 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 its own thing like everything is kind of revolving around that because there's so much blue elsewhere even the brunette that we see she's wearing blue as well she has like a a a very similar looking outfit to betty when they go to see her and smearing the red lipstick on the other camilla And even again, you compare that to the pink that Betty wears in the moment when she is like, she leans into Rita for a kiss. It's like a baby version of red, (laughs) you know? No, I agree with that too. When Diane's in the theater, uh, Club Silencio there too, she's got kind of a pinkish top on, which is like sort of a a baby version of red. Like she's still buying into the dream, but things are going out there. And I I think it's interesting on like a 
Rita there because, like I said in my theory with, uh, you know, them being two aspects of the same person, Camilla seems like the aspect that would be more based in reality, but it also is the key to chasing the dream that she's been looking for for so long. Mm. And then this is just kind of a random thing, which is maybe me looking into things a little too much here, but red is considered like a warm color, you know, the warmth of the dream and everything. Blue is considered a cool color, kind of cold dark reality Mm, sure there's also a fun thing where there's a trick of the eye where if you look at the same intensity of red light and blue light the red light will look brighter which seems that the dream seems more vivid and real than the cold dark reality i don't know just a thought there but i like that i like that a lot another thing that i found really interesting is in the audition where the blonde camilla is auditioning before adam kesher there and she does that really bad limp sync Mm -hmm. i think an interesting part of that is that betty kind of starts freaking out when that happens and kind of goes into a panic and is like, I have to go. And then the next like big lip-syncing performance we see in the film is in Club Silencio where as it's starting, she starts like shaking and, you know, gyrating and stuff like sure, that. Clearly, sure. Like it seems to indicate that that's a part that's almost knocking her back to reality from that. Yeah. Like, it's a kind of foreshadowing what will happen later, I suppose. Yeah. Very cool. Alright, well then in that case let's talk about why this is Not just a very good horror movie that we have just, of course, each interpreted 100% correctly. Absolutely. (laughs) But why it is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start this time. Okay. Well, I don't... it's It's a very striking movie. And whether or not you like it when you're done with it, it's not really a movie that I think you're ever going to forget watching. It's extremely unique like in the way that everything goes on in it, which is already a sign of greatness right there. Just memorability. How how can something be the greatest movie of all time if you can't remember watching it? (laughs) But it's also got like a very slow pace, but manages to never feel boring. I I think that's a really tough thing to nail, especially with kind of creepy atmospheric stuff with slow builds like that. Some of the stuff that really gets to me the most in horror as you build an atmosphere of just general dread and intrigue. If you do that wrong you can pretty easily veer into like just a generally boring movie but here that never happens <laughs> plus it's a movie that is extremely open to interpretation and is very rewarding of rewatches every time you watch this you'll probably pick out something new but i've watched it like probably five times at this point <laughs> so it's there's always more to think about with this thing and I, I think all of those are signs of a great movie at least in my case i like movies that i can keep thinking about over and over again absolutely i think that makes a lot of sense to me this is the best horror movie ever made because like i said everything is something in it it's just so incredible at being a rewarding text to dig into. You know, one th- one term that Lynch used a lot when he was talking about this movie was human putrefaction. The final stage of death before full decomposition begins, where all organic matter has started to break down. And he talks about that re- in regards to this movie, and it just is so fascinating to me to have someone come out and be so angry about Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> like... David doesn't feel like an angry person a lot of times, but this movie feels angry to me. It does. It's such a a screed. Like, it feels like the friggin' he's nailing up his 95 theses on the goddamn walls of Hollywood here. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see a message like this in this movie, too, about what I've interpreted to be actresses being taken advantage of in Hollywood and things like that. You know, powerful men abusing their power to get sex out of 
vulnerable women. It's interesting to see something like this come out in 2001, especially given like everything that's gone on in the last few years with the Me Too movement and like Harvey Weinstein, all of that coming to light. Yeah. I think this movie was kind of ahead of its time in that respect. Absolutely. I also love it because it makes me feel like Betty at her most innocent. You know, this makes me feel like I'm in the movies doing research and connecting the dots. Oh, yeah. I I love watching it and and picking up on all these little clues and everything and and using that to develop new theories about it. And I have been talking about this dumb Hitchcock book that I... It's not dumb. I don't know why I said that. Mm -hmm. I read a great Hitchcock book about how he developed his reputation. And in that book, the author, Dr. Capsis, says, because you have to define what great art is before you can start to talk about what is great art. And his definition, I thought, was really good, which is that it's something that people can agree on what they looked at on screen. So... Uh, it can be difficult for some experimental films to to fall into that category. But we agree about what the images on screen, but it can still support a ton of different interpretations of it. You know, mm-hmm. we just discussed two different interpretations of it. I have had several along the way <laughs> of developing mine own. I think that this is great art because you can take away from it whatever you will. Part of David's whole shtick about not explaining art is that this is the conversation. This movie is what he wants to say. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm listening, David, and I'm picking up what you're putting down, pal. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's just fantastic. Perfect example of a great art in, in movies and stuff like that. The, the beauty of art is all the different ways that we interpret things. And that's, you know, part of the reason I like music a lot is, well, music is incredibly open to interpretation. And certain other art forms, it can be harder to achieve that in, especially when you're telling like a, a narrative story like this. And this does it in spades. Even uh, the literal events of the film are basically open to interpretation. So. Right. <laughs> Definitely, and that is what makes this the best horror movie ever made. Jess, I want to thank you so much for coming on and for picking this movie because I loved it. I loved talking about it. Loved having you on. And I highly encourage people to check out all the rest of the stuff that you're on, which you can tell them about. No. Yeah. Well, okay. You can uh, you can, you can find me on my main thing is a uh, Cage Fight podcast. I do that with Mike, who has also been on here a few times, and uh, Taylor, who I don't think has been yet, but yet to be on. But that could change at any moment, folks. But yeah, uh, check us out there. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus recently for a couple of reasons, but we will be coming back to you with stuff this month uh, in in Wonderful. January, which will be good. Uh, we go through every Nicolas Cage movie and put them all in a bracket in an attempt to figure out which is the best one. And um, we we meet many wonderful movies along the way that unfortunately have had to go to the pile. So, uh, the pile of elimination. I don't know what the hell I'm saying here. Anyways... <laughs> Cage Fight is something you should check out. We also, if you want to follow us on Patreon, we've been doing some bonus episodes. We had one on Godzilla vs. King Kong, where we did a bunch of Godzilla movies and a bunch of King Kong movies, putting all those against each other. Then we were going to move on to a 9-11 movie bracket because of the 20th anniversary of it having happened recently. That should all be coming out very soon. Other than that... If you're interested in other things I've done where you don't have to hear me ramble and just know that I've worked on it, you can check out a podcast called Philosophy for the People, which is one where the host Nathan interviews a lot of different philosophers about a lot of different aspects of philosophy and uh, how they apply to us in the modern world. I produce that. 
So uh, you, you can hear my little shout out early on in the <laughs> episode and uh, maybe learn something about, I don't know, AI or uh, David Bowie even, I think, is in that podcast wow. at some point. So There you go. <laughs> it's all wonderful. You should definitely check it out. Cage Fight, of course, I have been on many times myself. Oh, yeah. So you could uh, go check those eps out as a great place to start. George is our most frequent guest. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm going to hold that title. Anytime someone matches me, I have to come back. Oh, yeah. I'm going to hold you to that. So. All right. Done and done. Oh, and also maybe follow me on Twitter at Infinite Jess with four S's. I mostly just make stupid shit posts, but you know. But it's fun. If that's your thing, well, I've got it in spades, baby. There you go. Check that out for sure. As far as my plugs, you can check me out on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere, including Patreon, where you can find all kinds of bonus episodes of this podcast of legal thriller, of all kinds of great stuff over there, and uh, all kinds of great stuff coming up in the new year as well. I also always forget to plug this, but there is like a a mailbag that people can send in questions to. If people, yeah, people have questions that they want answered on a mailbag episode, that would be bestlittlemailbag at gmail.com. So you can send stuff there. And maybe I'll read your question on the air. And won't that be fun? <laughs> Ooh, I've got some questions ready, I think. Wow, there we go. Like, why, why, why do they call it oven when you oven in the cold food out how to eat the food? You know? <laughs> so true. <laughs> and I have an answer ready, but of course I can't reveal it now. We'll have to wait until the mailbag app. Yeah. So uh, look forward to that. All right, everyone. <laughs> That's it for today. Have a good one. Bye. Bye-bye.